0: Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jensen, and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. Hi, I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solution. Thank you for listening to this, the fifth podcast in the series that we call Tour de Cooling, where we are taking a trip through the different parts of a refrigeration system. And today we, that's our experts, John Broughton and Jörg Saar and myself have reached the expansion device. John and Jörg is talking us through the many aspects of the metering device, the expansion device and about their practical experiences and advices to the subject. For questions comments and suggestions please mail to chilling with the in one word at danfoss.com good morning john and
1: Yerk. how are you today morning jens all fine on my side oh. thank you
2: oh good jens thank you
1: we're almost back
0: again to where the magic happens but only almost right when we're talking about this uh tour cooling One thing is that we just need to reduce the pressure from the liquid line now before the refrigerant runs into the evaporator. And that is, of course, done by the expansion or metering device. And that, I presume, can be done in very many different ways, isn't it, Uh, John and Jörg?
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I agree, Jens. There's there's many types of expansion valves. Um, if we just think of you know the the sort of main difference, we've got the electronic expansion valve, or the electric expansion valve, depending how we call it. And then we have the um, manual or thermostatic valve. But then there's there's variances of each of those as well.
1: Yeah, agree. And if you if you want to make it even simpler and you really go down to decreasing the pressure, throttling, then you just um, yeah, squeeze a pipe together and, and that's how you throttle. So either you have a, a small orifice or you have a longer thin pipe, a capillary tube, and, and that's how you throttle down the pressure. You just create quite a pressure drop. And that's it, and that reduces your flow, and and gives you a certain limited flow. Then, of course, as well, and that would be, yeah, as mentioned, a capillary tube or these these orifice um, orifice based devices. And well, I guess um, I
0: was just going to ask, where do you use what? But I guess at least when we're talking about the more well simpler devices uh i guess it has something to do with the the cost
1: right that is correct um cost and and usually the amount of of units you build because if you build in a capillary tube then it is quite difficult for a single system you build at your local butchery a code room and then you put a condensing unit to that and now to find the right capillary tube for that, that's difficult because you need to do quite a lot of measurements and so on to, to check whether that capillary tube works in your typical operating conditions. So that's why you do that when you have a serial production of many, many systems which are all the same. And mm. guess what your household refrigerator you build that thousands a day they are all the same the operating conditions are all the same everybody has the same temperature inside the refrigerator the temperature in the kitchen that means your condensing temperature is kind of the same everywhere and now you can you can do a lot of measurements and specify your capillary tube and then You build the same capillary tube into the same unit all over again that's of course for these many units there is a cost advantage if you do that only once your capillary tube is far too expensive because you need to do all these measurements then the expansion valve is far far more attractive cost wise
0: yeah i guess it also has to do with uh, capacity right Or does it?
2: Or does it? Mm, That's a good question, Jens, actually, because I've often wondered this regarding capillary tube. If you had, I don't know, let's say a 20 kilowatt unit, um, could you run it on a capillary tube? I guess the answer is yes, but it would have to be extremely long um, and maybe extremely thin. But that's an interesting question. Jörg, any
1: experience? Well, um, yeah, you could and and there are systems uh, hopefully not too many nowadays, but there there were air conditioning systems with even higher capacities running on fixed expansion devices. so either a capillary tube or or just an orifice, a fixed orifice. and if you have very constant operating conditions, which you often have on, on air conditioning systems, and you have a very constant capacity, so no variable speed compressor, for example, a fixed speed compressor, then you you can do that. You could even do 300 kilowatts. If you constantly have 300 kilowatts, well, you drill a six millimeter hole and whatever, right? <laughs> In, into a piece of metal. So yes, that would work. The question is just how often do you have these really constant operating conditions and the more capacity you have, the more savings you get even, even on on smaller changes. So if you change, let's say, take the 300 kilowatts and you, you change only 10%, that's already 30 kilowatts, right? And, and that change, if you all of a sudden can operate more efficient, that gives you an advantage. And that's why the expansion valve makes more sense there. in theory yes however we talk about the smaller capacities usually yes
2: yeah very
0: true. so the expansion valve let's let's start out with the thermostatic expansion valve which i guess is one of the more used devices or at least well-known devices in 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 the business uh any particular things to sort of uh, have uh, or, or focus on when when you uh, choose uh, uh, an expansion valve? Oh
1: yes, um, one very example one. There has to be Danfoss on, ah. on the valve, right? I mean, no, okay. But apart from apart from that, that there are some some things to to look at. Yes, um, one one really important point is to check whether you have a distributor after the expansion valve. If yes, always use an expansion valve, a thermostatic expansion valve with external pressure equalization. That's that's a pretty important point.
2: John? Correct. Correct. One, well, I'd, I'd just like to take a step back, Jens, actually, because okay, yeah. when I'm on site, a lot of um, th- there seems to be a lot of misinterpretation on the what the expansion valve can actually do. And people will say to me, well, we should be evaporating at, uh, you know, this particular temperature. Um, it's the expansion valve. And, and you know, my in- interpretation of that is the expansion valve is there as a metering device. It controls, uh, and we're getting a- a- ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it controls... The, the feed of liquid into the evaporating controls the superheat. The expansion valve does not control the evaporating temperature at all. That is the the balance between your, let's say your condensing unit and your evaporator, so the balance between those two um components. So I just want to sort of put that in there um as a starting point to say the expansion device controls superheat and that's it within the evaporator.
1: Yes, yeah, so yeah. you're so right. That's so important. Yes, <laughs> that's what the expansion valve is doing. So it's sometimes really important to say it's not at all controlling the ex- the evaporating temperature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Thank you for that.
2: And that equalizing line comment, Jorg. Um, yeah, totally agree. Uh, just if you have got a distributor, always um, equalize. But perhaps, Jorg, you could explain why we do that
1: yeah because the thermostatic expansion valve that as you said is controlling the superheat so it's comparing an, an a pressure the evaporating pressure to a temperature after the evaporator the temperature after the evaporator is taken via a bulb and that's compared internally mechanically via a membrane so the pressure Below the membrane, if you do not have external equalization, is always the pressure really at the expansion valve, at the outlet of the expansion valve. Now, if you have uh, um, a distributor, that's why you generate a pressure drop. And then your pressure in the evaporator is a different one compared to the one at the outlet of the expansion valve. And then the expansion valve can no longer really do a proper superheat control because it compares the wrong pressure and and that's why you need to make sure that you always bring the pressure back from the evaporator if you have a distributor
0: or, or put differently you control the valve itself in one end of the evaporator by measuring what happens at the other end of the evaporator, yeah, yeah, which by nature itself means that you need a connection from the 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 wrong end, so to speak, of the evaporator back to the valve itself, which sits mm-hmm. at the other end. So it's it's a it's a kind of a a remote control kind of thing, a mechanical remote control, right? Kind
1: yeah. of. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess while we're on that topic of the remote control, we need to ensure that the signals we get back from that remote control, bulb temperature, pressure is correct for the thermostatic. And then anything, uh, if we go electronic, we need to ensure we have the right signals coming back also.
0: And that means for, say, if we stay by the mechanical <laughs> valves?
2: That 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 means that the bulb or the file, um, I'm trying to think of any other words that it's known as, um, <clears throat> is placed correctly on the suction line, depending on the size of the suction line. Um, and it's it's tight. It's uh, it's connected using a proper bulb strap, and not uh, as I see very often tie wraps or cable ties. Hmm. And to make sure that it is insulated, so that it is getting the correct signal back to the expansion device, as Jörg said, to make it function correctly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there are quite some some details if we talk about that. You mentioned the really important points. Um, Fix it tight with a a proper strap, insulate it, and then, well, yeah, if it is on a horizontal pipe, have it somewhere between 3 o'clock or 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. It's right, some something like that. If if you would look at at the pipe and see it as a clock, so not it. You are allowed to mount it before nine o'clock in the morning, but uh, I'm I'm talking about the position, and and then if you have it on a on a vertical line, that capillary tube that leaves that bulb needs to point upwards, not downwards, when it's on a vertical pipe. So there are some things to take into account.
0: So, in other words, the TXV is actually quite uh, say uh, a device which requires quite some some uh, considerations when when mounting and I presume also uh, adjusting. But that's maybe something we could uh, come into.
1: yeah, it's it is a device that needs some consideration, yes. So, you need to, to do a few things as you should do. On the other hand, if you do that, then the TXV is, is a an extremely robust, reliable thing. It works. It It's doing its job. It does not need any electricity. It does not need anything else, right? It works. Mm-hmm. You don't need to, to do any other... Um, adjustments you place it as mentioned in the instructions and then it works that's the great thing about it
2: yeah just on the one topic that you said Jens regarding and and, and Jörg about adjustment um the valve will need to be set up to measure the superheat um and when it is adjusted it's a quarter of a turn leave it for 15 minutes, measure the superheat, and then maybe if it needs further adjustment, another quarter of a turn. Very often you'll see people, you know, giving it a full turn uh, or worse. um, You know, it's gentle, gentle, step by step when you set it up on-site.
1: Yeah, and when, when you mention setting setting the superheat and taking your time the taking your time is a really important thing and then there is a danfoss app which is called the superheat tuner and you can use that app and the nice thing about that app is it tells you how long you should wait so it really reminds you hey you have now done that adjustment and then it tells you now please wait for let's say, 7, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you do the next measurement. Give the system time to find its new operation point.
0: And uh, and that's probably something which is a bit uh, delicate, maybe, in some cases. Time. Because there's another customer waiting, right?
2: Yeah, always. (laughs) Always. But yeah, you you need to give it time. You need to give it. You need to give the system time to, as Yog said, find its new operating um, point. Um, yeah, one one other topic that that springs to mind regarding, let's say, thermostatic valves is the capacity and any extra capacity, and where that valve should be, let's say, sized in the beginning. Um, do you size it at maximum duty? 80% duty, um, all those sort of topics. Is there any extra capacity on a thermostatic valve compared to, let's say, an electronic valve?
1: Yes, uh, there is. Yeah, uh, just coming back to, to the time, one comment. I mean, yes, you might, you might spend half an hour there, for example. You do two adjustments, you wait two times 15 minutes. So, you spend that half an hour extra. But compare that to the time you spend driving back to the site a day later and and grabbing all your tools and so on. Do you want to spend those three to four hours instead of that half an hour when you do a proper job? And as that somebody yells at you because the system did not work, spend that that time adjusting the valve. Sorry for that, but um, <laughs> coming. No, I coming think it's alright then to to this point, do you have extra capacity? Yes, you do on the thermostatic expansion valve because the thermostatic expansion valve is is proportional. That means the more superheat you have, the more it opens. Of course, there is a certain limit to that, but, but in general, the more superheat you have, the more it opens, and that gives you more capacity. So let's say you're, you're normal capacity is at a hundred percent that's that's your nominal capacity but when you give the valve more superheat it can give you 120 sometimes 130 percent of capacity so you have some something left on an electric expansion valve then that thing opens completely at a hundred percent and that's it that there is no more So that needs to be taken into consideration when you select a valve. And uh, you need to have in mind that you might have a pull-down capacity, which is a bit higher than your nominal capacity that you need when you do your cold room calculation.
0: I guess there's also uh, some, uh, well, if it's logic, I don't know, but at least uh, there is a a sense in that you actually, when you, you dimension after the capacity in the upper half or at least the upper half of the 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 capacity of the valve then you have a better regulation than if you had a way too big valve that is that you would (coughs) regulate at the bottom so to speak of the valve Uh, does that make sense what i'm trying to say
2: it does Um, Generally, with a thermostatic valve, it will regulate down to 25% um, and be fairly stable from its maximum capacity. So, if you had a valve that did 100 kilowatts, it would regulate down to 25-30 kilowatts quite happily. If you had an electronic valve, it would regulate down Probably a little bit further, down to sort of 15%. Um, But that's the sort of, you know, limit that we're talking about. So, yeah, they can regulate, uh, you know, a good 75% swing within the duty.
1: And if if your valve would be too small, would you recognize that? So if your your capacity is simply not sufficient. If
2: the capacity was not sufficient, then the valve would be fully open all the time, trying to, um, you know, supply enough liquid to uh, give you that capacity. And then you would measure your superheat on the evaporator and your superheat would be higher than it would normally be on the evaporator.
1: The other way around, I mean, you mentioned it can go down to a certain percentage. So what happens if if the orifice in the valve is far too big?
2: If it's if it's far too big, um then you'll have uh a let's say satisfied superheat, but the control of that will be uh the valve will, will hunt. So your superheat will not be constant if your valve is way and, and I mean way oversized, so it can't regulate down um, you know, at that sort of 25-30 percent for the thermostatic or the 15% for the electronic. So the control of the superheat will be, yeah, let's say, uh, not not stable.
0: Talking about um, capacity, how do you actually select the right expansion valve um, in terms of 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 the best capacity to that particular purpose? How do you do that?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, you of course need to to have your your general data which you have because you know the capacity of your evaporator, you know your capacity of your, let's say, condensing unit. That means you have the system capacity here. And then you select your expansion valve according to your required evaporator capacity. And there are two possible ways how to do that. One is the way of going into a printed table where you then go into that table and say this is my evaporating temperature this is my pressure drop across the expansion valve and then you calculate your condensing pressure and you have uh, your evaporating pressure that gives you the pressure drop minus the pressure drop in the distributor and and you select the required capacity in that table and then that table tells you which Orify size you have in which valve. Or you use the electronic help of a software and then for, for example provides a software called Cool Selector that's a free of charge software. And you just type in your operating conditions. You say, These are my operating conditions, of course, the refrigerant, then. Um, as you've done it on paper where the refrigerant is uh, you have different tables for different refrigerants so in cool selector you give that software your operating conditions your your refrigerant and then you get the right valve selection from cool selector and you can even play around and say what would happen if i would select a smaller or A larger orifice for smaller orifice you might get the information (laughs) doesn't work it's undersized Um, and if you go for a larger orifice you might see well this opens up only 30% in in your normal operation and you know that you can have not a big downturn ratio so that's that's on a really nice graphical point how you see that selection and then it gives you all the code numbers and all the stuff you need so that's that's pretty simple using code selector very comfy okay thank you
2: the other interesting topic regarding any form of expansion valve whether it's mechanical or electric if you have a a pressure drop through your evaporator um, that is let's say Large, and by that I'm talking, you know, five, six, seven bar through your evaporator. And that might be because there is an orifice plate in the distributor, it might be because of the circuit- circuiting within the evaporator. Then, what you will find with that is that your valve for a given capacity will not satisfy the duty of that uh, evaporator, and the contractor will generally always fit a larger orifice or a larger valve trying to remedy the situation. But that will not basically work because the pressure drop in the valve is too high, or the pressure drop across the evaporator is too high, so the liquid doesn't flow correctly through the evaporator. And it's actually made worse with electronic valves than mechanical valves. There is a, a misnomer, I think, that if you have a, a challenge on site with the evaporator, with the location, with the airflow, fit an electronic valve and that will solve all the problems. Generally, oh. it actually makes the problems worse. Mm. Um,
1: yeah, you should solve the problem, right? Uh, <laughs> not, not play around with, with the device that does not generate the problem.
2: Yeah. yeah, you know, things like if somebody has installed an evaporator which has not got enough airflow flowing through the the coil, um, I spent many a time on site with electronics where they'd fit an electronic valve and it would be worse because the valve reacts much quicker than the thermostatic valve. Mm.
0: So solve the problem with the devices installed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense, I guess. Yeah. but talking about uh, talking about electronic expansion valves or electric uh, expansion valves, when uh, would we need to use those then I mean, it sounds as if it has to come with the the system
1: or so need um, you can you can equip kind of almost any system with an a thermostatic or an electric expansion valve there is no clear clear point where you say these applications need electric expansion valves those applications need thermostatic expansion valves it is really a bit more into the direction of each valve has its advantages And which one do you want to use? And to make that very simple, the thermostatic expansion valve, you put it in, it works. It does not need any electricity. You don't need to connect any electric sensors. You don't need to connect an electric or an electronic superheat controller. It just works. The electric expansion valve, of course, works as well, but here you need to do some more settings and you have the advantage that you can influence it more. You can talk to the controller, for example, I mean, electronically talk to the controller and then tell the valve what it has to do in a certain situation. You cannot do that on a thermostatic valve.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would agree. I think the the the, the only um, topic that I would sort of choose between thermostatic and electronic would be the pull down. Um, so if you have something like a blast freezer, blast chill, where you start off with a very high capacity and end up with a holding capacity, and if you can't get that capacity swing with a the thermostatic, then I would go electronic um you know if you wanted to go from 100 kilowatt down to 15 kilowatt then you would go electronic um but if, yeah that 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 that's a, a very big capacity swing so i think in most cases you would be able to achieve that with a thermostatic um but that that's the only time i would say that you can make a definite choice
1: yeah and then, yeah, as, as mentioned, if, if you look at certain applications, um, they have kind of changed over to electric expansion valves, but not necessarily or not at all because the thermostatic did not work and not necessarily because that was needed for, for the normal operation. But you can, you can do some things that you could not do with the thermostatic valve. Let's take the example of of residential heat pumps, um, where quite a lot of these heat pumps use electric expansion valves now. If you do a defrost, you can tell the valve to open to a certain degree, to make sure your plate heat exchanger indoors in your heating system does not freeze, which becomes the evaporator if you turn the system into a defrost. And then you can tell the electric expansion valve, by the way, the expansion valve open to 80% now. I do a defrost now. You cannot do that to a thermostatic expansion valve. And and that kind of thing, that's that's what you want to, to use with the electric expansion valve. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: The, the same could be said for oil return, for example. In a supermarket installation, you can force open the valves. At the same time, the compressor pack will speed up um, if it's been running on low load for a period of time. So, yeah, they are more communicative. Um, is a is a word? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, good thing is that you don't need to communicate in Danish with it. <laughs>
1: yeah they all communicate yeah. in digital as far as yeah. i understand yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: great okay um anything else that we need to cover in this uh when we're talking about electronic and expand uh, uh, mechanical devices it's often a discussion i i hear that 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 goes on which one is the better one and and uh, why is it better etc cetera, etc cetera. but you you actually just uh, mentioned the different things that there isn't uh, it depends quite a lot of on 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 what it is that you want to obtain
1: mm.
0: uh, right yeah Correct. yeah
2: i think so i think it very much comes down to the application what you physically want to do um Another application that springs to mind for electronic is this uh, in supermarket refrigeration now is to run the coils almost fully flooded, which you cannot do with a thermostatic, but you can do with an electronic. As was discussed, you know, you can tell the valve what to do um, and and how to function. So, yeah, I think it comes down to the application itself. Um, One or some some questions that I get asked frequently is how far away from the evaporator can I place my expansion valve? For example, if I have a cold room and the evaporator is inside, can I place the expansion device on the roof, Um, which could be, you know, half a meter, a meter away from the distributor? That's a, a common question. So I'd be, Interested to hear your, your thoughts, Jörg.
1: Well, yeah, half half a meter, meter, I don't I don't see an issue there yet. If we talk about really long distances, so let's say ten, twenty meters. Um and probably, John probably you got these questions as well. Then this might work. But now you need to to really, really dive extremely deep into a lot of things. And the main reason for that is that the refrigerant coming out of the expansion valve is a mixture of liquid and flash gas. So that's that's really when when you shake a carbonized or a bottle of carbonized water and then you open that, right? What's coming out of that bottle? all all that splashy stuff that's what comes out of the expansion valve and that's what you want to have you have it you want to have it mixed like that so that when when this mixture hits a distributor for example or hits your evaporator that that you have liquid everywhere mixed with a couple of of bubbles at some points if you now have a long pipe after the expansion valve gravity looks at that mixture and says hey liquid you are going to be down in the line and gas you are going to be in the upper part of the line in other words that separates the liquid and and the gas will separate and now you 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 run into the challenge of of mixing that again of distributing that in a good way that's why you should have your your valve as short as possible to the to the evaporator so that the mixture gets into that evaporator and not the separated, the separated stuff. That's mm-hmm. that's the idea.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would uh, agree. Um, just on that, it's reminded me of something that we uh, that we state is that when you come out of your expansion valve, the pipe length between the expansion valve and the distributor should be seven and a half times the diameter of the pipe. Um, so that you get uh, yeah, what's the phrase laminar flow into your distributor, so you get equal distribution through all your tubes in your distributor?
1: yeah, that that's the idea that you get kind of the same into every single distribution distribution tube and in, into every single part of the evaporator. and yeah. And thanks for mentioning that. That's uh, the reason why a distributor should be looking into a certain direction, and that's downwards. If that's not possible, we can talk about upwards. Okay, Um, but downwards is the preferred one. Upwards is the other one, which is okay. What you should not do is have it on a longer pipe and then just just uh, horizontal on a horizontal longer pipe. If you put a distributor there, what you're gonna see is that the upper pipes will see gas only, and the lower pipes will get liquid only. And then how do you want to feed your your evaporator in a good way?
2: Yeah, yeah. And you can you can quite easily test that with a, a a little temperature probe and check the temperature of each distributor lead or pipe. As it comes off the distributor, and if you have equal, uh, let's say, temperature spread on all your tubes, then you've got good distribution. But uh, as you said, if it's uh, you know, if the top ones have gas, they will be a lot warmer than the ones with liquid.
1: And, and now that that we talk about orientation of something, what about the orientation of the valve itself?
2: Mm. Mm. Um, the only Points that I ever picked up on was that uh, you don't want a, uh, elec- well, uh, an electronic valve or a thermostatic valve to be upside down um, because then you can collect any uh, swarf or whatever uh, on the diaphragm itself which will eventually lead to failure. Um, same with the electronic valves but that's more to do with if it was an AKV, for example, to get oil logging in the armature tube, things like that. So generally, don't point anything uh, upside down. You can have it on a horizontal or a vertical. um, but if it's in the vertical, it should be uh, you know pointing upwards. Um, yeah, stepper valves. I would have said the same thing regarding oil.
1: Yeah, agree or whatever whatever small particles, debris you might have in the system, you don't want them to fall into your stepper mechanism.
2: What about insulation of the valve itself? Because you do see that quite often where people will wrap the thermostatic valve with an insulated tape. I see that quite a lot to uh, to avoid you know moisture not necessarily in a big evaporator but maybe in a small servo of a counter or something uh, they'll just wrap everything in that horrible black um, sticky tape that you know you cannot get off again
1: yeah well for me if you have an, an electric expansion valve I, I don't see a major issue on that the only thing might be that your coil gets too warm because it cannot dissipate any any heat and you need to pay some attention there uh, or in case I mean in case your, your coil gets damaged over time you might want to replace that coil so if it's wrapped into that sticky stuff that's a bit difficult to replace that coil then. If we talk about a thermostatic expansion valve, now we probably need to talk a little about about MOP as well. Uh, not, not MOP, um, the charge reversal. The the charge reversal. Yeah, um, yeah, MOP, and and then that can become a challenge. That your valve gets too cold and then the bulb charge goes from the bulb into the valve because it always goes where the coldest part is and if you if you insulate that valve it might become pretty cold because you have you have your expansion there and then the charge goes back there if you do not have that kind of charge in the valve if you have a so-called universal charge you have so much charge in in the bulb that there is always enough left, even if the valve and the capillary tube are completely filled, that charge still works. But if you have a uh, so-called MOP charge, then there is only a little bit there and that might go completely out of the bulb and then you don't have a really a real control anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about MOP, you wanna jump onto that, John? So, um, yes, Jog, to answer your question
2: regarding MOP, where to use an, an MOP valve um, or an MOP charge in the valve itself. Basically, what we don't want to do is, uh, and we're coming back to our compressor now, um, but when we, let's take uh, an application of a uh, cold room with, um, let's say, a freshly slaughtered uh, uh, carcass, When you load your cauldron with a high heat load, what is the first thing that is going to happen? The suction pressure is going to rise. And if the suction pressure rises above the operating envelope of our compressor, then we will uh, risk uh, causing our compressor failure. So we use an MOP charge in the valve, which is a a limited amount of charge so that the valve cannot physically um, open
1: yeah, but when when you restart, when we use an MOP charge, then then that should be possible, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So we use an MOP charge to limit the uh, suction pressure coming back to our machine. The valve cannot physically open further,
1: and that that then limits, of course, your evaporating pressure because there is exactly. no further refrigerant injection. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's one other example. for for an electric expansion valve. So for the thermostatic one, you choose a valve and that has a given MOP point, right? If you say, uh, I choose an MOP charge, then you select a valve with an MOP charge. With the electric expansion valve, you can tell the controller, and by the way, when your suction pressure goes higher than this, you stop opening the valve. Yeah, so that that's that's um a possibility on the electric one and you can tell it in some cases you do it in other cases you don't the the expansion valve is doing it all the time so you might say well then i then i always go for the electric one right so i can tell it what to do yeah but you need to tell it um, yes. yeah. in order yeah. not to forget it if you choose the mop valve the thermostatic one you have it implemented you don't need to worry about that so it's yes. it's um, we come back to to yeah what do you want
2: yeah yeah there's an in in interesting um challenge with the electronic valve and mop because the setting or at least this is the way that it used to be when i worked with electronic valves is that the setting of zero which you would read a zero bar uh was off so the mop function was disabled but you when you actually read it in the when you're scrolling through the parameters you see mop0 so you think the mop point is 0 but it isn't it actually the function is off mm. so uh just a little point for anybody out there in the field if they see that that's what it i believe that's still the the setting nowadays
0: anything else we need to cover
1: yeah subcooling i think that's that's a point. When yeah. we talk about selecting the right size of of the orifice in the valve or the right valve size if you have a fixed orifice there, then you do your selection according to certain selection points, your your evaporating temperature, your capacity. and then you assume a certain subcooling which is usually just a few kelvin um if you due to whatever reason have a really big subcooling of 10 12 uh, i saw systems up to 40 kelvin whether that makes sense or not let's discuss maybe in 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 another session but if you have a higher subcooling you get more capacity out of the same valve and that means your valve might become too big. And that's why you need to pay attention when when you have a high subcooling.
2: I fully agree. And for the purposes of the listeners, um what does what effect does subcooling have on our liquid then York?
1: You mean on the on on the high pressure side or no
2: why do we get more capacity if we have a heavily subcooled liquid?
1: Ah, okay. Well, when when you expand the refrigerant and you have only a little bit of subcooling, then you start to produce flash gas in the expansion valve reasonably fast. And you generate a certain amount of, of flash gas. Now, if you have a... A lot of subcooling. You start to expand your refrigerant, the pressure goes down, but it still remains liquid. You don't generate flash gas for quite a time. You need to expand or decrease the pressure before you reach that flash gas generation point quite a bit. And that simply means that you get more percentage wise, you get more liquid out of the expansion valve. So uh, typically if you have a normal subcooling and you expand you might have 70% liquid, 30% gas coming out of the expansion valve. Now you have a high subcooling, you might have only 5% gas coming out of the expansion valve and 95% liquid. The v- the volume that you can squeeze through that valve remains the same so you get a lot more kilograms of refrigerant through that valve and and then you get a lot more cooling capacity through that valve and that's why you you get a higher capacity and your control is a bit more difficult if you have that low uh, that high subcooling mhm of course, if you have no subcooling, <laughs> then you have an, then you have another problem. If you have no subcooling, you might have a little bit of of flash gas already ahead of the expansion valve, maybe from the filter dryer that has a small pressure drop, maybe from a few bends in your liquid line, and now you have gas bubbles ahead of the expansion valve, and now these gas bubbles need to squeeze through that expansion valve. And then you get far, far less kilograms flowing through your expansion valve because gas, the weight is far lower than the, the liquid. And you get almost no refrigerant in kilograms through your expansion valve. And then your evaporator is starving. So that's why you need subcooling ahead of the expansion valve.
2: And that is the typical, let's say, summertime fault when the temperatures rise and we can't condense the liquid in the condenser that we've spoken about. Um, So you get, as you said, your flash gas and we don't get the refrigeration capacity that we should be having um, in the system itself.
1: Yes, agree. And um, now we might close a circle. Now we might come back to, to a question that you mentioned, John that we get sometimes, can I install my expansion valve far away from, from the evaporator? And um, then you might say, yeah, but why? Why do you want to do that? And sometimes you might have a condensing unit standing on, on the floor. Your evaporator is six meters higher somewhere. Now you might have some uh, subcooling, but your liquid needs to go up six meters. That's 0.6 bars that you lose just because of the height. And all of a sudden, after five meters, you have lost all your subcooling and you start to generate flash gas. So have that in mind as well that when you go up with the refrigerant, there is a limit to that because with every meter. You kill 0.1 bar. And that of course kills subcooling. And then you might might end up somewhere where you don't have any subcooling anymore. And you have flash gas ahead of your expansion valve. That means then you need if you really want to go high, you need an extra subcooler. Yeah. Uh
0: coming back to the superheat. Um well, I mean, we we are operating with two different types of, of 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 superheat. We have the static superheat, and we have the opening superheat. What is actually the
2: difference? It's a good question. Um, yeah, if if we look at an expansion valve, and it, and this is you know only for a um, thermostatic valve, that if we talk about static superheat, um, that is the amount of superheat that we need to physically open the orifice on that valve and the, the figures vary uh, depending on the uh, you know model of expansion valve, but you might be looking at sort of two three degrees Kelvin of superheat just to lift that valve off its seat so that it starts to open and then you'll have your opening superheat or your operational superheat. Um, which you know, there's there's lots of discussions. How much superheat should you have in an evaporator? Um, I think the the famous figure is 6.5 Kelvin, which is what the evaporator capacity is based upon. Is that right, Yorg? Am yeah, um, I mixing the, two the, different the things f- there?
1: Yeah, the famous figure is the temp or the difference between evaporating temperature and Air temperature, so air inlet to your evaporator minus evaporating temperature, and that number multiplied by 0.65. Nice. So, if you have 10 Kelvin difference, so let's say you evaporate at zero degrees Celsius, your air inlet is 10, you have 10 K difference multiplied by 0.65, you have the six and a half Kelvin.
2: Yeah, so. So, yeah, that's static superheat is basically the amount of superheat that we need to lift the valve off its seat. And then we have our um, opening superheat, which will then open the the orifice further. Um, and, you know, generally, if we're talking thermostatic valve, you want to be running yeah eight Kelvin, nine Kelvin superheat somewhere around there and with an electronic valve. Yeah, six and a half um, is the sort of norm, if you like. But the beauty of an electronic valve is that we give it a minimum and a maximum, and then the adaptive algorithm within the controller will then define where the minimum stable superheat point is, and just back off slightly from that. So those are the the sort of two two values that I uh, work with.
1: Yeah, and just to mention that. The superheat that you measure—that's the complete superheat, so static plus openings. The the operational superheat—you mm-hmm. yeah. cannot measure the the other ones.
2: Yeah,
1: um, you you always measure the operational superheat on on that valve.
0: Thank you for listening in to this podcast. You will meet Jörg Saar and John Broughton in the coming episodes of Tour de Cooling. Please allow me to repeat what I just mentioned in the start, that you can ask questions and send comments by sending them to chillingwithyens in one word, at danfos.com. or you can post your question in the social medias where you find Danfoss, typically LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. Thank you.